Voice of the Blue. I am Royce, your host, bringing you an intimate look at the men and women of the law enforcement profession through their service, their stories, their lives, and sometimes through their own words. This program is funded and produced for you by the American Police Hall of Fame in Titusville, Florida. You can check them out at aphf.org, aphf.org, or better yet, if you have the opportunity, visit the American Police Hall of Fame at 6350 Horizon Drive in Titusville, Florida, and see the work they do for the families of the fallen officers across our land. Scholarships, Christmas and birthday remembrances and gifts, and much more the Police Hall of Fame does for the surviving members of the fallen officers throughout our land. Be sure to visit the museum while you're there and see the officer's memorial there where the names of thousands of America's finest repose on granite walls. Make sure you visit the shooting center while you're there if you'd like to get a chance to even shoot a machine gun. It's a full day of family fun, shopping, shooting experience at the American Police Hall of Fame in Titusville, Florida. And now we're going to take a look at the life and career of a very famous lawman of the Old West. A man by the name of Bass Reeves, who was a U.S. Deputy Marshal. He was noted for saying a particular quote he would rattle off. It said, maybe the law ain't perfect, but it's the only one we've got. And without it, we got nothing. Amen, Mr. Reeves. Amen. He was born to slave parents in 1838 in Crawford County, Arkansas. He would become the first black U.S. Deputy Marshal west of the Mississippi River and one of the greatest frontier heroes in our nation's history. He was owned by a man named William Reeves. He was a farmer and a politician, and Bass took his surname like other slaves did at the time. His first name came from his grandfather, whose name was Bass Washington. Reeves began his career, his work life, I should say, as a water boy, running water buckets out to the field workers to ladle a drink from until he was old enough to become a field hand himself, where he worked beside his own parents out in the fields for Mr. William Reeves. At about 1846, Mr. Reeves moved his operations, his family, and all of his slaves to Grayson County, Texas. Bass Reeves was a tall young man. He was six feet two inches tall. He was known to have good manners and a very good sense of humor. George Reeves, who was Mr. William's, uh, William Reeves' son, later appointed Bass to be his valet, his bodyguard, and his personal companion. And when the Civil War later broke out and Texas sided with the Confederacy, George Reeves went off into battle and he took Bass with him. And during these years of the Civil War, Bass later parted company from Reeves. There were a few speculative stories were abounding as to the cause of it, while others simply believed that Bass had heard too much about freeing the slaves and he just ran away. In any event, Bass fled into the Indian Territory in Oklahoma, and there he took refuge with the Seminole, the Cherokee, and the Creek Indians. He began to learn their customs, their languages, their hunting skills, their tracking skills, and it was there he learned his firearms skills. 
He became very quick and accurate with a pistol. He very modestly claimed that he was only fair with the rifle, but uh, that was a half-truth because he was frequently barred from competitive turkey shoots because he seemed to win so easily. Upon being freed by the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 and no longer finding himself as a fugitive, Reeves left the Indian Territory and bought some land near Van Buren, Arkansas, where he became a successful farmer and rancher. A year later, he married a woman named Nellie Jenny from Texas and immediately began to have a family. Ended up raising 10 children there on their homestead, five girls and five boys. And they did very well there on the farm, providing for themselves they were very prosperous as farmers. Now, during this time, Reeves would sometimes serve to make extra money. They would, he would be commissioned to serve as a scout and a guide for the U.S. Deputy Marshals who would go into Indian Territory on business for the Van Buren Federal Court. Uh, the Van Buren Federal Court had jurisdiction over the Indian Territories at the time. This experience would come into play later during his law enforcement career. Now, his life as a contented farmer would change when the Federal Western District Court was moved out to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Judge Isaac C. Parker, who was also historically referred to as the Hanging Judge, was appointed on May 10, 1875. At that time, the Indian Territory had become extremely lawless. There were a lot of thieves, a lot of murderers, and other criminals desperados, anybody who wanted to hide from the law took refuge in the Indian territories because they had no previous federal or state jurisdiction there, and they figured, well, we're safe here. Now, one of Judge Parker's first official acts was to appoint U.S. Marshal James F. Fagan as head of some 200 deputies he was then commissioned to hire. Fagan heard of Bass Reeves, and he knew that he had significant knowledge of the area, as well as his ability to speak several tribal languages, so he immediately recruited him as a U.S. Deputy Marshal. The deputies were tasked by Judge Parker with cleaning up the Indian Territory, as he directed it, and to basically bring them in alive or dead, it didn't matter to Judge Parker but he aimed to clean up those territories, and he did so. Now, working alongside other lawmen that would also, in and of their own right, become legendary, such as men like Heck Thomas and Bud Ledbetter and Bill Tigman, Reeves began to ride the Oklahoma Range in search of outlaws. He covered some 75,000 square miles, the United States Court at Fort Smith, being uh, the largest in the nation. So these deputies were tasked with uh, patrolling, essentially, and going into and bringing back fugitives within the 75,000-square-mile area. Now, depending on the outlaws he was searching for, Deputy Marshal Reeves would generally take with him from Fort Smith a wagon, a supply wagon, a cook, and a trusted Native American posseman. Often they rode to such places as Fort Reno, Fort Sill, and Anadarko, and that was a round trip of more than 800 miles. And although Reeves could not read or write, it didn't curb his effectiveness in bringing back these desperados. Before he would head out, what he would do, he would have somebody read him the warrants, 
and memorize the contents of those warrants. And whenever he would look at the warrant and, and recognize the, the uh, configuration of the writing, the paragraphs and such, and he would be able to pick out which warrant was which. So people really couldn't tell that he was not able to read or write because they would ask him to produce a warrant and he would never fail to pick out the correct one. And he was a very imposing figure. He was always seen riding a large white stallion and he began to earn a reputation as being very courageous and successful at bringing in or even ending the criminal career of many desperados of the territory. They said he always wore a very large hat. He was usually a spiffy dresser, and his boots were always polished to a gleaming shine. Now, he was known for his politeness and his courteous manner. However, it was said that when the purpose served him, he was also a master of disguises and often used aliases. Sometimes he would appear as a cowboy, a farmer, a gunslinger, or even as an outlaw himself. They said he wore two Colt pistols, always with the butt forward, which he felt was a faster draw. He was also ambidextrous in his use of his firearms, especially his handguns, and they said he rarely missed his mark left-handed or right. Leaving Fort Smith most often with a pocket full of warrants, Reeves would always return months later. He would always seem to be herding several outlaws charged with various crimes ranging from bootlegging to murder uh, back with him. He was paid in fees and rewards, and in so doing, he made a very handsome profit uh, after going and capturing these fugitives and these desperados. He would go back and spend time with his family before returning to the range again. The tales of his captures are literally legendary, a lot of them filled with intrigue, imagination, and courage. On one such occasion, Reeves was pursuing two outlaws in the Red River Valley near the Texas border. He gathered up a posse, and he, with those men, set up camp some 28 miles from where those two fugitives were thought to be hiding at their mother's home. He studied the terrain and he created a plan and he disguised himself as a tramp, hiding the tools of his trade, as it was stated, the handcuffs, his pistols, his badge. He hid them under these rags, these raggedy clothes that he was wearing. And he literally on foot traversed those 28 miles where those two young men were said to be holed up. He arrived at the mother's house, the mother of the two young men, wearing an old pair of shoes, some dirty clothes, carrying a cane, and wearing a really floppy hat that had three bullet holes in it. After he knocked on the door and gained her trust, he told her that his feet were aching after having been chased by a posse, and they had put three bullet holes in his hat. And he asked her for a bite to eat, and she invited him in. And while he was eating, she began to tell him of her two young outlaw sons, suggesting that maybe the three of them should join forces. He began to pretend he was weary, and she noticed this and invited him to stay a while longer. As the sun was setting, Reeves heard a whistle coming from outside the house. And shortly afterward, the, the woman, she went outside and she responded with an answering whistle. Sure enough, before long, two riders rode up to the house. 
talking with her uh, outside the house. And the three of them then came inside and she introduced her sons to Reeves. After discussing their various crimes, the trio agreed to join up uh, with Mr. Bass Reeves, supposing that he was indeed who he said he was. They had no idea, obviously. He bunked down with them in the same room, and he watched them very carefully as they drifted off to sleep, and he made sure they were snoring deeply as he handcuffed both of them without even waking them up. When early morning came, he kicked the boys awake and marched them out the door. He was followed for the first three miles by their angry mother, who was throwing curses at him the entire time, but apparently she gave up after that three miles and went back to her home. He marched those boys that 28 miles back to the camp where his posse men waited. The outlaws were delivered to the authorities within days, and Bass collected a $5,000 reward for their capture. One of the high points of Reeves' career was taking out a very notorious outlaw named Bob Dozier. Bob Dozier was a farmer who turned outlaw, had been accused of multiple crimes in the Indian Territory before Reeves tracked him down. Dozier, prior to a life of crime, had been, like Reeves, a very prosperous farmer. And unlike many outlaws of the time, Dozier really didn't feel forced by any necessity to take up thievery, but evidently chose that lifestyle. Who knows for what reason, maybe adventure, maybe for greed, maybe for both. No one really knows. What is known is that once he took up the life of crime, he was every bit as successful as he had been at farming. He was described by many people as a very skillful, clever, and vicious jack-of-all-trades, involved in a wide variety of crimes, including thievery of every imaginable kind, cattle rustling, robbing banks, robbing stores, holding up stagecoaches, and even taking the last little bit of cash from lonely riders on the trail. He was also the leader of a horse-stealing ring, uh, equivalent to today's car theft ring. He acted as a fence for stolen jewels and was involved in several land deal swindles. In some cases, he was said to have been known to even torture and kill people from whom he wished to obtain information. Dozer had been for years pursued by various lawmen, some of whom were U.S. Deputy Marshals working under Judge Isaac Parker's iron hand, one of whom was soon to be Deputy Marshal Bash Reeves. By 1878, Reeves was on the trail of this clever outlaw, who was known to openly scoff at law enforcement as well as Judge Parker, who was, like I said, known as the Hanging Judge. Eventually, Dozier learned that Bass Reeves was following him and actually sent word back to Reeves that he would kill him if he did not stop hunting him. Uh, apparently, that didn't daunt Reeves very much at all because he sent a message back to Dozier telling him that if he'd simply stop running, he'd be glad to give him that chance. Apparently, Dozier stayed on the run. Wisely done. After tracking the outlaw for several months, Reeves had tips that led him to the Cherokee Nation in present-day Oklahoma. On December 20th, 1878, Bass Reeves and only one posseman knew they were getting close as they rode deeper and deeper into the Cherokee Hills. 
A big bad storm erupted that night as the two men began to look for a dry place to camp for the night. They were getting close to finding a good spot when they heard a bullet whiz by Reeves' head and a split second later the report from a, from a rifle. The two lawmen ran for cover, expecting more gunshots, but only were greeted with silence. And that's when Reeves saw a shadow moving through the trees. He fired twice. The gunfire was quickly returned, at which point they dove for cover. On the ground, Bass spied his attacker in the trees. It was Bob Dozier, who was laughing loudly, believing he had gotten Bass Reeves. Suddenly, Bass jumped up and ordered Dozier to drop his gun. The outlaw dropped quickly into a crouch instead, and he brought his rifle up. But Reeves was faster, his aim was deadlier, and there and then he ended the life and criminal career of Bob Dozier with a single shot. According to his daughter, Alice Reeves Spahn, Bass Reeves felt the high point of his career was bringing justice to one Bob Dozier. In 1889, after Reeves was assigned to Paris, Texas, he went after the Tom Story gang, who were a gang of horse thieves. He waited along the route that the gang was known to have used and surprised Tom Story with an arrest warrant. The outlaw panicked and drew his gun, but Reeves drew faster and shot him down. The rest of the gang disbanded and were never heard from again. In 1890, Reeves arrested a notorious Seminole outlaw named Greenleaf, who had murdered seven people and had been on the run for 18 years. The same year, Reeves went after the famous Cherokee outlaw, Ned Christie. Reeves and his posse had, had burned down Christie's cabin, but Christie had eluded capture. In 1896, Reeves' wife died in Fort Smith, and the following year, he was transferred to the Muscogee Federal Court in Indian Territory, and in 1990, he married for a second time to a woman named Winnie Sumter. And although the tales of Reeves' heroics were many and varied and storied, the toughest manhunt for the lawman was involved when he was hunting down his own son in 1902. After he had delivered two prisoners to U.S. Marshal Leo Bennett in Muskogee, Oklahoma, he came home to bad news. His son, Benny, had been charged with murder after killing his wife in a fit of jealousy. And although the warrant had been lying on Bennett's desk for two days, the other deputies were very reluctant to take it. And although Bass was shaken, he demanded to accept the responsibility for finding his own son. And two weeks later, Reeves returned to Muskogee with his son in tow and turned him over to Marshal Bennett. His son was tried, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison and sent to Kansas Leavenworth Penitentiary. Later, with a citizen's petition and an exemplary prison record, Benny Reeves was pardoned and lived the rest of his life as a model citizen. It was said by the Oklahoma City Weekly Times Journal that Bass Reeves was never known to show the slightest excitement under any circumstance, and he was a man who simply did not show fear. And he was very much, as he put it, bound by duty.
1907, state agencies began to assume the law enforcement duties, and Reeves' duties as deputy marshal came to an end. He took a job as a patrolman with the Muskogee, Oklahoma Police Department, and during those two years, he served in such a capacity that there were no crimes reported on his beat, because apparently his reputation was more than enough to keep all of the outlaw activity to nothing. Sadly, Reeves was soon thereafter diagnosed with Bright's disease, an ailment that affects the liver. And it ended his career uh, when he took his sickbed in 1909. And then on January 12th, 1910, he died. And he was buried in the agency cemetery at Muskogee, Oklahoma, even though the exact location of his grave is unknown to this day. This lengthy and glowing obituary for this universally respected man described him as absolutely fearless and knowing no master but duty. Over the 35 years that Bass Reeves served as a Deputy United States Marshal, he earned his place in history by being one of the most effective lawmen in Indian Territory, bringing in more than 3,000 outlaws and helping to tame the lawless territory, ending the lives of some 14 outlaws during his service. Reeves said he'd never shot a man when it was not necessary for him to do so in the discharge of his duty to save his own life. Please pray for our men and women behind the badge. And the United States of America, God bless you all. I'll catch you on the next episode of The Voice of the Blue. This program is funded and produced for you by the American Police Hall of Fame in Titusville, Florida. Check them out at APHF.org.